Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. I'm Nina Shea. I direct the Center for Religious Freedom here at the Hudson Institute. And it is really my honor to be introducing this program today. It's extremely important that we talk about um, Nigeria's um, problems, its crisis with Boko Haram. Um, this is a, an extraordinary moment um, for Nigeria and for the world, really. The uh, Boko Haram, as you know, has sworn allegiance this month, and it's been accepted by ISIS, um, and it is already an ultra-violent group, so um, I'm very eager to hear what our experts today are going to say about the implications of that. Also, we're preparing for elect national elections, March 28th. Of course, you remember the uh, original date of uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, they were postponed because, uh, ostensibly because of the Boko Haram violence. So we're going to be hearing today from two very extraordinary people. Um, one is Emmanuel Ogabe, who's an old friend of the Hudson Institute and has been here uh, several times in the past. He is a Nigerian human rights lawyer. And um, just this year so far, he has been to Nigeria three times, um, looking at monitoring, documenting, interviewing people about Boko Haram um, and its human rights violations and religious persecution. Also um, with him today is uh, Buki Shonaberry, um, who's, this is her first time at the Hudson Institute, and she is one of the leading members of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign um, relevant to the abduction of the 276 schoolgirls in Chibok while they were taking their exams in Nigeria last April. So we're almost coming up to the first year anniversary of that um, atrocity. Um, Buki has um, uh, just come to us uh, from the United Nations where she was uh, in New York, where she was uh, addressing the impact of the insurgency on women's rights in Nigeria. And she has um, been in country in Nigeria where she lives, um, interviewing IDPs there, victims of Boko Haram's um, sweep through areas that burn and destroy villages. Um, we also have with us today uh, four special guests um, and they are, I'm very, very honored to be hosting them. Uh, they are girls who have escaped. They were the Chibok, four Chibok schoolgirls who escaped in the first two days after Boko Haram abducted the 276 girls. Um, they um, are here as silent witnesses to the fact that their sisters remain um, missing. And they will be... Um, be introducing them later in the program. So without further ado, please um, join me in welcoming Buki Shun Berry, who will be our first speaker. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, all. Okay, my name is Buki Shun Berry, and I'm from Nigeria. I'm from Abuja, Nigeria. Um, it's been 343 days since the Chibok girls were abducted. And um, we at the Bring Back Our Girls um, in Abuja, we commenced our um, daily protest 
um, on April the 30th. And for us, it was to be able to raise consciousness of the fact that we can be a nation that would sit down where mm. girls have been abducted. These are vulnerable members of our society, and nothing has been done to get them back. It's been 343 days since the Chibok girls were abducted. We have expected them back right from day one. Unfortunately, nothing was done. But let me set some context. Before the abduction of the Chiba girls, it's important for us to know that there's been abductions in Nigeria. Abductions of boys, of girls, of young women. And what they do with them is, is, is nothing that words can put together. A lot of the girls would be told that you, you shouldn't go to school. You should, you should be at home. You should be married at 12, at 9, at 16, you know, at, at, at 14. And what they do is that they get them, they marry some of them among themselves. They take some of them to Sambisa Forest or wherever they are. They marry some of them off, and, and they do all sorts to them. Boys are killed because they believe that a generation of young boys who are educated means that they would also you know, pass on that culture of education to their children. Before the abduction of the Chibok girls, in February precisely of 2014, 59 boys were killed in Buninyadi. Buninyadi is, in a, is also in the northeastern part of Nigeria, in Yobe State precisely. And we expected that our government would be able to react and respond to that issue in such a way that sends a strong message to us as Nigerians and even to the international community. The same thing that happened in, during the Charlie Hebdo issue, where, you know, there's been killing, there's been a terrorist attack, and the government came out immediately to respond. But not just in their response. They were able to garner the whole world to say that we are not alone in this struggle. Join us. And what did we see? We saw the whole world came together and joined forces with France to say that in this struggle to ensure that your people are safe, we are with you in this. Unfortunately, we didn't see that. And what's more scary, really, is the emboldenment of the Boko Haram insurgents. What has happened is because of the security lapses and, and, and owes in Nigeria, these people sort of have a free will to do whatever they want to do. So there's been continuous attack. Every day in Nigeria, there's one attack or the other. Every day in Nigeria, there are abductions, there are killings, there are maimings that is going on in Nigeria. A lot of them are largely unreported. And we believe that it is intentionally so, so that people like you in the international community will not be aware of the horrendous attack that is going on in Nigeria. Mm. So the issue is intentionally being covered up so that people would not know the shame that is going on in Nigeria. What scared us as, as a movement, when it was one month after the abduction, we commemorated that day. We had a vigil in Abuja. We had a candlelight procession. And we, on that day, we, we, none of us thought that we would have to commemorate one month since abduction of 200 and something girls. It, it beats our imagination 
that young girls would, in some countries, a child will be abducted or taken, and, and the country will literally shut down. But what did we see in our country? 200 and something girls in a, in a community that is impoverished were taken, and, and 343 days after, nothing has been done. It sends a strong message to us as a people, as Nigerians, and even to the international community, that we have a big security challenge in Nigeria. And you and I know that it is the primary responsibility of any government to ensure the security and safety of lives and properties. That is enshrined in our constitution in Nigeria as well. So you, you would expect that the government would use the situation of the abducted Chibo girls to pass a message that we are not only capable to protect lives and properties, but we care enough about our people to do something when issues like this happen. But because of the, of, of the way we responded to it, even right from the beginning, there was denial that there was abduction of girls. The denial alone, an expert say, you, you know, that the first 24 hours is really critical to the eventual outcome of that process of rescuing. Mm. But what did we do within 24 hours? We were passing bl blames. Our government believed that is a stunt from the opposition party. The opposition party believes that the government has indeed done that so that close to the election they will get these girls back and use it to scotch a political point. Unfortunately, these are lives. Vulnerable people. Innocent people who don't even, who want just basic, they are not asking for too much. Why should a girl, a child, have to choose between education and staying alive? That is the situation in Nigeria. So an average Northeastern girl is unable to go to school because going to school is synonymous to being abducted or to being killed. So you can imagine the generation of people that we are breeding in the northeastern part of Nigeria simply because they don't have access to education. These people would come back and haunt us back if nothing is systematically done to curb this particular challenge. Looking at the correlation between Boko Haram and, and ISIS sends a good shock to us as a people. In their modus operandi, in the way they do things, both, both have declared caliphate. And you can imagine what, would, what is now happening, knowing that Boko Haram has declared allegiance to ISIS. It means more funding for them. It means more embodiment. It means more attention on them. And that alone fuels their vision. And you can imagine what would happen to that country. This is not a Northeastern problem. This is a Nigeria problem. And until we deal with, with it, then we are setting ourselves up for a bigger problem. I'm on a project in the northeastern part of Nigeria that assists internally displaced persons. So I've had to go into the northeast, and I've had to interact with some of these people. Interacting with them reveals something, that if the government of Nigeria and the international community and the whole world does not respond to this issue, of victims of insurgency, especially internally displaced persons and refugees, then there is a ticking time bomb. What that means is I met young men, able-bodied young men, young men who had vision before insurgents came and displaced them. 
So they have to now live in a community where they have to struggle to get food, where they no longer live where in, in places they used to know as home. Imagine what we are setting them up for. You all know, like we say, that the idle mind is the devil's workshop, right? So you can imagine what would happen to these people. So I asked them, would you want to go back to school? They say, yes, they want to go to school. A lot of them say, no, they don't want to go to school. If going to school is synonymous to being abducted or being killed, that is what we are going through in Nigeria. So for us as a people, we believe that something has to be urgently done. And in 22 days' time, it will be one year since the abduction. That sends a strong message to us. Not just to Nigerians, but to the human race. That 200 and something girls could be abducted somewhere, and 343 days after they are not yet back, then there is a, a big problem that we, not, we have to look into. There's something that has to form a conversation where we sit down, put it on the table, and dissect what went wrong. Because it could look far from us, but within a matter of time, God forbid, it could come close. What were the challenges? What didn't we do well? How did we respond to this? If it took 66 days for the Presidential Fact-Finding Committee to come out with a report to say, yes, indeed, we acknowledge officially that there was an abduction, then you can imagine the response that happened before them. The parents of the Chibo girls, that, that is one part that I'm unable to deal with. These are people who have not only lost their daughters, but they have to struggle for survival. A lot of them have been displaced. A lot of them no longer live in Chibok. 17 of those parents have died since the abduction of their girls. So it means even if we get those girls back, some girls would return and they would not meet their parents. So 17 of those parents have died, and you wonder that what would happen to the remaining two of those parents are currently critically, critically ill with preventable diseases, high blood pressure, depression, stress, stroke, and you would imagine what is happening. So for me, I believe that it is important that on the occasion of one year, we need to revive this conversation and put it back on the front burner and say to ourselves that we want something to be done. The same passion, the same vigor, the same energy with which we came out when those girls were abducted, we need to bring it back so that we communicate to ourselves, to our consciences, to the humanity in us. That until these girls return back, then something is not right with us as a people. This is not a Nigerian problem. This is our problem. This is a problem that borders on our shared humanity. And until something is done, then there is a problem that needs to be tackled. So again, in closing, is to say that we hope that people like you will rise up and put your government to action. And make them accountable that, yes, it is happening in West Africa, in Nigeria, but it is our problem. What has happened? What's the challenge? Can we know why you are unable to assist and support? We have had to converse with some of these critical stakeholders, including the American government. And in conversing with them, 
They explain some, some limitations, some regulations that they have to go through. But are we doing this at the expense of innocent lives who are still there in abduction? Girls are now being used as suicide bombers in Nigeria. In fact, that is even on the increase right now. So you can imagine an average Chibok parent. Every time there is, a, there is a bomb attack that is perpetrated by a girl, they have to ask us, can, can we see the head of that child so that we know if it is our daughter? Imagine a mother having to go through that or a father having to go through that. So again, it's to say that something has to be done and we are hoping that we will come back and join forces the way we did. This is not about carrying placards. This is about ensuring that something is indeed done for these girls to be brought back and for the issue of Boko Haram to be ended in Nigeria. Thank you. Good morning. Well, it's actually afternoon now, so good afternoon, everyone. Um, after that very impassioned delivery, I think I'm going to bore you all to sleep. Uh, but I want to thank uh, Buki, who I'm meeting for the first time, but whose work uh, I've come across a great deal. Uh, I want to thank her for coming here at short notice to speak with us. I'll, I'll make a few brief remarks, and then hopefully she'll be able to give us uh, a bit of insight into the humanitarian situation, because she works... Uh, a, a great deal with uh, the IDPs in Nigeria. Um, just uh, in case you missed it, the, in case you missed the wedding announcement in the Washington Post, uh, Boko Haram proposed to ISIS, and ISIS said yes. And now we have conceivably one of the worst uh, marriages of terrorism um, that we face in, uh, in contemporary world history. Now, uh, what has happened is, over the years, um, Boko Haram has been listed as the second deadliest terror group in the world. Uh, it fell to number three, um, uh, and the first and second were the Taliban in Afghanistan and the Taliban in uh, in. in uh, Pakistan. So if you consider them you know, to be the same entity, Boko Haram was technically second to Taliban, and uh, the ISIS was fourth. So a merger of Boko Haram and ISIS is equivalent to the merger of, uh, was it Delta and Northwest, you know, creating you know, the super uh, airline. Um, and this doesn't just mean high ticket prices. It just means a higher body count. Uh, but let me, let me probably provide a bit of perspective by numbers here. Um, last year, um, ISIS was reported to have killed, uh, by last year they were reported to have killed about four, 6,000 people. Uh, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations now estimates that Boko Haram um, last year uh, resulted in deaths of close to 10,000 people or thereabouts. So even from sheer lethality, Boko Haram uh, is w way bloodier than ISIS is. Uh, but you can't get that from, you know, watching the news and the press. 
to give you a, a practical illustration, uh, I think the largest mass murder of ISIS that we saw, the largest uh, beheadings was uh, the 21 uh, Egyptian Coptic Christians. Uh, Boko Haram's largest known mass beheadings was in September 2013. Uh, I was in Nigeria at the time, and on that day, they beheaded over 150 Christians. And what they did was they mounted roadblocks and dressed as the military, and as you came and you showed your ID and they identified your name as Christian, uh, they beheaded you with a chainsaw. And they used chainsaws because uh, they wanted to, you know, quickly go through the traffic. And so you had cars lined up for about 10 kilometers, patiently waiting for their deaths, not knowing that this was a rogue uh, roadblock set up by Boko Haram. In that attack, about 20 Muslims were killed uh, because they had government-issued ID that showed that they worked for the state. So a total of close to 170 people were beheaded that day in Bini Sheikh. Now, the reason why Boko Haram's atrocities, though way more egregious than ISIS, have not garnered as much attention is partly because ISIS is more tech-savvy than Boko Haram. And so with this commingling of uh, efficiencies, um, we expect to see and I already begin to see signs of uh, Boko Haram's videos becoming slightly more advanced. Now, um, one of the few areas uh, where ISIS has way more uh, sophistication uh, or prowess than Boko Haram is with the foreign fighters. Now, Boko Haram has nowhere near that number of foreign fighters, but they, have, they do have foreign fighters. Um, Boko Haram has uh, foreign fighters from Chad, Niger, Northern Mali, and it's documented that they've had you know, trainers and equipment technicians from Egypt and Pakistan. So they, they already have an international uh, operation going. They've had training in Northern Mali. They've had training uh, in Somalia with Al-Shabaab. So it's kind of been regional. But I think the breaking news for us is that recently uh, Cameroonian authorities arrested seven Frenchmen uh, fighting alongside Boko Haram. Now, this is a whole new level uh, of uh, foreign fighter participation because when you begin to have Westerners from Europe uh, participating alongside Boko Haram, I think it's a whole uh, new frontier of uh, terror. Now, maybe I should add at this point that when Boko Haram did the uh, mind-numbing abductions of the Chibok schoolgirls, um, what was Al-Qaeda's response? Al-Qaeda's response was to condemn Boko Haram. They, I mean, it was stunning for me to see in the New York Times that Al-Qaeda actually said, hey, you know, this level of terror is off the charts. You guys should tamp it down a little. That's when you know that you're really in a bad place. Mm -hmm. Now, what was ISIS's response? ISIS's response to the abductions of the Chibok schoolgirls was to begin adopting, ad abducting uh, Yazidis and Christians in Iraq. So that seemed to be the point where ISIS said, you know what, if these guys uh, are getting this kind of condemnation from Al-Qaeda, let's emulate them, they're good guys uh, to get into bed with. Now, their relationship, I, I think, uh, from my observations, ha has been one of 
grudging admiration and rivalry. Um, and, and just to explain a bit of this whole caliphate phenomenon, in Nigeria, there already exists a caliphate that is headed by the Sultan of Nigeria. And so when Boko Haram declared their own caliphate, you can't have two caliphates uh, within the same domain. Uh, it, it's actually treasonous to do that. Um, and so when they, they declared that, that shook the Nigerian uh, Muslim establishment because there were many people who were sympathizers of Boko Haram because they were espousing an extreme uh, view of Islam that seemed theologically correct. But when they actually undermined the existing caliphate, then the system began to react. And subsequent to that declaration, Boko Haram actually backed it up by blowing up a mosque. This was the first successful bombing of a mosque last year in Nigeria, and over uh, 100 people uh, were killed. Um, so uh, that was the beginning of that schism or division. Now, when uh, ISIS declared its own caliphate, it was uh, sort of counterintuitive for Boko Haram to also declare a caliphate. Um, and so they are coming around now and pledging allegiance to that other caliphate is bringing them into one global uh, fold uh, and one caliphate. Um, without going too much into the technicalities of that, I, I just thought that that was one uh, uh, perspective uh, to look at. But le let me again talk about you know, some of the implications of, uh, of what is going on. Boko Haram, as it exists, and many people may not realize this, has a large um, operational theater or a significant uh, geographical footprint. Boko Haram has operated in northern Mali, uh, in Niger, in Chad, in Cameroon, and Nigeria. So that is a larger number of countries than ISIS itself uh, is operating in. And so uh, this merger uh, of uh, ideology and potentially operations uh, is going to be a very large one uh, if they're able to get it through. Another reason why I think it's important to us is it's a new door uh, to quote uh, ISIS acceptance uh, speech. That It's a new door, it's a new territory, it's a new theater of conflict for them. Uh, and what I found interesting was they said, you know, we're calling on, you know, our Muslim brothers to go to Nigeria and join the fight. And I, I think they actually said something to the effect that our Muslim brothers who can't come to uh, Iraq, you know, you can go to this other place and join the fight. Now, we, the Western world clearly is responding to the inflow um, or the outflow of foreign fighters from, you know, uh, the UK, even the United States and other locations to uh, Turkey, and, you know, safety nets uh, are being established uh, or drag nets to try and uh, block those flows. So for them to say, you know, if you can't get in here because these folks are blocking you off, you know, go to Africa. And so I, I, I think it's a very strategic action uh, by these people uh, uh, to open a new flank uh, for um, the terrorists uh, to flow into. Now, I have here a very brief uh, PowerPoint um, I've addressed most of these uh, issues already, but I, I thought that it was important for us to realize that 
um, uh, Boko Haram killed in the first week of January the same number of people that it took ISIS six months to kill last year. So if they begin to share weapons and tactics, um, we're looking at a very significant optic in the blood flows. Uh, one uh, point I wanted to make is this. Um, Boko Haram is obviously older than ISIS. Uh, but what were the antecedents of Boko Haram? This is very intriguing. Boko Haram started in 2002, and it was actually at the time named the Nigerian Taliban. So that means that their role model at conception was the uh, Taliban in, uh, in Afghanistan. Now, uh, let me point out that um, when the U.S. invaded um, Afghanistan to overthrow the, uh, the, the Taliban, they found amongst the foreign fighters fighting along with um, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, they found Nigerian uh, Muslims. And so the trail of what happened to those Nigerian Muslims went cold after the U.S. invasion. Um, as far as I know, I have seen no evidence that they ended up in, um, in Gitmo. So the theory is that, you know, they were given a get-out-of-jail card free because, you know, no one maybe seriously thought that they would go back to Nigeria and start, you know, uh, a caliphate or start a terrorist group or whatever. But um, it's documented that they were found there then. Shortly after is when we see this Nigerian Taliban in, in north, northern Nigeria. And guess what? This group that was modeled aspirationally after the Taliban 13 years ago, this year, uh, sorry, in 2014, um, that group has killed as many people as the Taliban killed last year. It took them 13 years from when they were first called the Nigerian Taliban to kill as many people as the uh, Taliban itself uh, killed last year. So I say this to say that we uh, need not be um, uh, condescending towards um, ideologies that start off that way. Because given a little time, they can do um, great damage. Uh, and so we now see uh, what appears to be, and I like what Pope Francis uh, described it as. He says uh, it's a piecemeal third world war because it's happening uh, simultaneously across different fronts, but it's the same ideology. Uh, it's not a geographically contiguous uh, and identifiable enemy, but it is, you know, it's, it's uh, ideologically aligned, and that's why it is... And it is even more insidious uh, because you cannot see it. Um, you know, it's not contained. It's not confined in one uh, location. Uh, I, I think I would like to wrap up my remarks here before we uh, maybe hear more from Buki about IDPs or we, we go to questions and answers. I don't know how Nina will go. But I, I want to talk about, you know, the uh, threshold for horror that Boko Haram has been able to do. I mean, every year they do something, and I think they can't do anything worse. Uh, because I remember the Chainsaw Massacre. It was just really horrific. Um, uh, I, I spoke to the brother of uh, a, a guy who was killed on that, and he said 
because the phone networks were jammed, the, the terrorists were blowing up telecommunications towers so that people couldn't call for help. So his brother traveled to the neighboring town to make a call to his mom. And on his way back, he ran into that checkpoint and, and he was beheaded. And, 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 you know, I saw that and I was like, this is the most horrible thing I've ever heard, uh, the, the chainsaw massacre. And, and then the next thing was, you know, the abduction of the girls, the killing, the slitting of the throats of the schoolboys, uh, using of, of, of girls as suicide bombers. And, and then last week, there was a new low. Uh, in one community, um, the, uh, there's a regional force that is fighting Boko Haram. And the Boko Haram fighters in that community wanted to flee. And so, obviously, they were sacking the city, doing, you know, uh, what desperate terrorists do. And then they decided that they needed to kill their wives. And, you know, why would they do that? And one lady who survived that slaughter said, well, they said... We don't want our wives to marry anyone else, so let's kill them so that we can have them again when we get to paradise. Uh, you know, I, 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 you, that kind of evil is unfathomable. And if that is what they do to people they love, what exactly will they do to those of us they loathe because we don't believe as they do? And I, I thank you for your kind attention. Um, yeah, just listening to both of you uh, reminds me that um, our policymakers indeed have not paid attention to this phenomenon, uh, this monstrosity. They have not paid attention to either the ideological elements that link them and uh, could not anticipate the um, marriage, as you call it. And um, some are even dismissing the importance of this merger now between the two big terror groups. It took uh, our government, the United States, um, several years. It was only until a little over a year ago to acknowledge that it was, in fact, a terrorist group, and that was because, largely because of the lobbying of Emmanuel and others. Um, and um, I'll never forget... Um, and I'll never stop citing the example of our Assistant Secretary of State, who the day after the Easter bombing of a church full of worshipers went to a think tank in town and announced uh, our Assistant Secretary that this is uh, due to uh, uh, this is a good governance issue. Uh, the Boko Haram is reacting to a bad government, to the poor delivery of government services. No. Um, no, no, no recognition that there was an ideo ideology and there was an ideological goal. And uh, maybe this uh, merger will, will now get their attention. Buki, did you want to respond, before we go to Q&A, did you want to respond to anything Emmanuel uh, raised or... Yes, um, two things. One thing he said and um, one, um, one thing that you said as well. Um, beyond the fact that um, the killing of their wives you know, which, which is faulty. It's, looking at the marriage, the context of marriage is, is we shouldn't call them their wives mm -hmm. because there is no how you would say that you married these people and, and they can legitimately be called um, um, your wife. But unfortunately, that, that is the situation. Beyond the fact that they didn't want somebody else to marry their wives, they are concerned that 
with recent actions that are now being taken, which is also questionable, that some of their wives could also be taken. And when they are gotten, there is, there's possibility that they would reveal, you know, sensitive information about them. So it's one of the reasons why they believe that it's important for them to start killing their wives. Now, who are their wives? Their wives are young girls and young women who have been taken and abducted. And we fear also for that, simply because these are young people, which is why I also fault when we say that there are female suicide bombers. These are innocent, naive girls who don't even understand anything. So you get them, you, you sell some ideologies to them, you, you tell them to go and buy some things and then hold it to their chest, you stripe a bomb around them and then ask them to go and bomb themselves with the belief that when they get to heaven, those things that they bought and held on to before they died is what they would use to start life. For an average child, who these girls are, such things could actually sell. And so when one of the girls turned herself in some, some, um, two, some last month and said that, you know, I have bomb around me, they asked her, so why are you coming out to, to reveal yourself and what you can? And she said, because her friends that had died before then were blown off including what they held on to. And that means that whatever is the ideology that they have sold to us is wrong. Hmm. And that made her not to go ahead with that operation. Hmm. So beyond the fact that these people are actually angry with a system that has failed them, there is also the ideological part, which is strong. And they are intentionally targeting vulnerable young people who are still in their formative years, you know, to perpetrate, um, to perpetrate their evil. Mm. The second thing that um, we, I also wanted to point out is the aspect of the lack of education right now in the northeastern part of Nigeria. Mm. Schools have been shut down for close to more than two years right now. Now, I mean public government schools that can be afforded by the average parent in the northeastern part of Nigeria because these people are, are mainly impoverished. They are, they are within the lower belt of, of income generation. So, so what happens to them is they are unable to go to school because schools have been shut down. So you can imagine the kind of future that we are creating for these people when something as critical as education is taken away from them. Now, so these people are not only victims of insurgents, they are also victims of an embarrassing failed system in Nigeria. Thank you. I, I'd like to go to questions now. Yes, ma'am. Wait, wait for the microphone and please identify yourself. Susan Yoshihara. Susan Yoshihara from the Center for Family and Human Rights. And uh, thank you for your impassioned plea uh, for these girls. Um, I wanted to ask, I was also in New York last week at the Commission of Status of Women uh, on a panel discussing children born of war, uh, in particular a woman in uh, northern Uganda working with, uh, to try to get the girls back. And when they came back, many of them were mothers. They brought back children. Uh, and the communities were unprepared. They weren't really brought into the DDR process, the, the uh, reintegration process. Um, and also finding that the children who were born in captivity, the older ones now are 
sub-commanders to their LRA fathers, and sadly the girls are sort of, for better, lack of a better word, second-generation sex slaves. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering now, it's been a year, if, um, if we've heard if any of the girls have become mothers and if their parents are aware and, and what is being done to welcome all of them back, which, please, God, will be soon. Um, none of the Chibo girls have been brought back. Um, the 57 that, um, that are back escaped on their own. Um, however, beyond the Chibo girls, like I said earlier, there's been abductions before them. So there have been girls who have been abducted and who came back pregnant, you know. Um, unfortunately, you need to understand the system in Nigeria. These, these places and these people are heavily guarded such that we don't even have access to them to be able to get relevant information that would, you know, help in providing a coherent answer to the question that you have asked. However, one of the things that we have requested for is an holistic response to this issue. Response in the sense that, one, some of them come back pregnant, some of them come back with HIV AIDS. At least we have one of the girls who was brought back, well, not just one, some of them who were brought back and, and they have HIV AIDS. Some of them have also spent so long in that camp that they, 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 they have a sense of allegiance to a group that, you know, um, Stockholm, Stockholm, abdo- syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that in itself is, is fearful for us because these people have the high tendency to perpetrate the same evil that their abductors perpetrate. So we had one of the girls who was brought back, but we didn't know that that girl was brought back to be able to perform an operation. So she came back, she killed her mother, she killed her younger one, and sat in the pool of blood, having done that. So you can imagine the kind of people that these people are um, are raising. So again, it's to say that a lot of... Civil society groups are trying to respond, but there's, there's only limit to what they can do. It's only a drop in the ocean. The government still has a responsibility to play in ensuring an holistic response to this issue so that the ones that come back pregnant, there should be a system that deals with them so that it, these same people don't come back to haunt us as a nation. Yeah, if I may quickly just uh, throw in two cents here. Um, Just walking with some of the girls who escaped has been a rude awakening for me as to the inaction, Um, you know, after all the hashtags. uh, I've brought 10 of them to school in the States, uh, four of whom are seated right here, and we've not gotten uh, institutional funding from any major donors. It's all been a completely grassroots uh, affair. But let me mention something intriguing. Three of the four girls who are here with us right now lost family members last month. Now, the statistical odds are unbelievable that three out of four, that's 70%, lost family members last last month. Now, um, as she pointed out, a lot of, they don't have homes to return to. Yeah. Um, their communities have been attacked and their families are IDPs, you know, and it, it's just unbelievable what has happened. Um, and uh, he, here's what really actually gets me. The U.S. Embassy denied um, one of their schoolmates who has gotten admission to school in the U.S., has uh, uh, a scholarship. They denied her a visa. 
And, and I should add again, because she was denied in December, and they made us pay all these fees, hundreds of dollars, and she went back again, and two weeks ago they denied her visa. And so uh, we, we look at some of this stuff, and we, we don't even know where to begin to, to respond. Um, but I will say two things. I, uh, I do a lot of fact-finding. I'm careful what I release so that it doesn't jeopardize my sources. But I will say that this year we've come across for the first time uh, one of the escapees who is, um, who is pregnant. Uh, actually, we now, we actually two, I, I should uh, qualify that two, um, we're still investigating uh, that. Now, most of the girls escaped within the first 72 hours. In our midst today is one very courageous girl who took one week to escape, went through the forest one week, and I was chased by the terrorists. It's, it's, it's like a movie story, and uh, we're, we're privileged to have her in our midst. But I, I will share this, and I haven't told this to anyone. I will share this real quick. Uh, we just got what I think is the most credible uh, report of one of the girls um, being, in, uh, being a, in a group of terrorists that attacked uh, their community. She wasn't uh, involved in the attack, but she apparently was carrying uh, supplies for them. And she, she sneaked a message to a local woman, and she spoke in her language, and she said, do you know me? And the woman was like, no, I don't know you. And she said, this is my name. And this is my mom's name. Uh, let her know. Give her this for me. And what did she give? She gave her a couple of um, uh, bullets because that's all she had. And she said, tell my mom to make a necklace with this. Uh, and so to me, it was very touching that even though she was surrounded by these terrorists and she had nothing except the weapons she was carrying for them, she said, you know what, send this to my mom and let her know I'm, I'm alive. So I'm glad that the spirits of these girls uh, remains defiant, and the world needs to remain defiant against these terrorists alongside these girls. Mm -hmm. Question right there. Hi, uh, Josh Forjave. I'm a master's candidate in the security studies program at Georgetown. Um, quick question for you. Um, do you think that the presence of South African and Russian mercenaries in the conflict is going to make things worse, or do you think that that will have a positive effect as far as countering Boko Haram? <laughs> well, uh, that's a good question. Um, I've always felt, in, in Nigeria, you, you pretty much have to outsource everything. Context for the question. Okay. Uh, recently, the government of Nigeria apparently hired mercenaries from South Africa and possibly Russia to come in and help with the battle. Um, and um, so the question is whether it, it helps. Now, I, I, in Nigeria, you have to outsource a lot of stuff. Um, you know, you have to ha have a generator because there's no power. So maybe we need to recruit a foreign army because ours isn't doing as well as it should. Um, I, operationally, I don't know how good they are. Um, Boko Haram has used foreign fighters. Maybe Nigeria should too. Two can play at this game. Um, but... I recently heard, I actually heard that some of the mercenaries have been killed in the friendly fire. 
And if that's the case, this is not a good way to start. That's my <laughs> quick answer to that. Let me add to that to say that um, the Nigerian military um, as what used to be adjudged as the best in terms of um, um, fighting wars and curbing insurgencies and, um, you know, issues like this across, you know, other, other states that they go into. Now, the competence of the Nigerian military is, is, is undoubted, undoubted in the fact that these men have the capacity, they have, you know, the ability to be able to curb this. We've had cause to relate with some of the military, and, and they say to us, that with everything in place, we will flush out Boko Haram in seven days. Now, that seems ambitious, but with the track record of this same military, we believe that they can actually do so. Unfortunately, the current reality, you know, is, is, is shameful in the sense that there's been a lot of politicization. There's, there, there, there's been interference of the political harm of our government and the military, who should have been allowed to maintain their independence in terms of their modus operandi. Unfortunately, there's been interference, and that is jeopardizing their independence. It is jeopardizing their ability, you know, to take actions and do what is needed. One. Two, is the utilization of our resources. We really do not need to have gone out because we have the men. It is to look inward and say that what could possibly be the issue as to why our men are unable to tackle these issues. If we have exhausted all options, all challenges, then we can now say, okay, it is important for us to bring um, new machineries from outside in. Unfortunately, these new people come in, they pay them way more than what they are currently paying our military. I leave that to you to imagine the implications of that. So imagine running an office, you have a new employee that is coming in, and you are paying that new employee more than what you are paying those people that have labored for years and that are still risking their lives to be able to tackle that issue. Imagine what would happen, you know, to that. So, so possible implications is sabotaging. You know, you come in, you want to show that you can solve this issue when we are here. So I, I, I leave that to us to imagine the possible um, implications of all that, but it's, 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 it's sad that we have to make such kind of decision. Mm. We have time for one last question in the back there. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Faji Kumapoy. I'm with the uh, U.S. military uh, from the Pentagon. And uh, thank you for your brief. And uh, I know you mentioned um, the need for the international community and the U.S. government and uh, to, to do more to address the issue. And uh, in light of um, the, uh, I guess, the I'm trying to, uh, so in light of the government, Niger the Nigerian government refusing U.S. military support, in uh, assisting uh, in assisting um, the military in the fight against Boko Haram, uh, and also due to sovereignty issues, the uh, government of Nigeria, 
how can you be more specific as far as steps that needs to be taken uh, by not just uh, the Department of Defense, but the Department of State and other U.S. government agencies in assisting the Nigerian government tackle the issue? Well, um, you know, l let me say uh, quickly here that um, it, the jury is still out on who is refusing to help whom. The U.S. military has said, oh, we want to train the Nigerians, but they don't have the equipment needed to be trained on. The Nigerians are saying, we try to buy equipment, and the U.S. blocked us from buying the equipment. So, you know, you have an egg and, uh, you know, and chicken scenario, uh, uh, you know, around us. Now, I've contrasted the U.S. response to ISIS in Iraq and the U.S. response to Nigeria. The president of, the prime minister of Iraq said, look, we want a credit line to buy equipment uh, because oil prices are down. And the international community approved the credit line and threw in free equipment. Nigeria came with cash in hand. Said, look, in spite of the crash in oil prices, we're willing to pay up front for this equipment. And they were blocked. And so it, it's, it, it's a, it, there's a deep policy inconsistency on the U.S. side of this divide that hasn't helped the situation. And, and so uh, that certainly is a cause for concern. Another thing that happened was the U.S. said, oh, after the elections, you know, uh, we will cooperate more to fight Boko Haram. Now, Boko Haram is not taking a tea break for the elections. If, if Boko Haram is evil now, they will be evil after elections. Let's, let's work concertedly now to do that. And so when the elections were postponed, obviously the cooperation is postponed further. So we need to have a greater sense of urgency about what is happening. I, I want to point out that many people don't realize Boko Haram has uh, killed citizens of over 15 countries. It's not just um, Nigerians. They're killing. Uh, they've killed Britons, Germans, uh, Italians, and uh, Koreans, and uh, uh, Chinese, and so on and so forth. So it's actually uh, an international problem. So uh, I, I, that, that's my take uh, on that. Yeah, we're just about out of time. I would say, though, that um, you know, the United States has pointed to human rights, uh, the poor human rights record of the Nigerian military, and that is a legitimate concern. But we have to find, um, I believe we have to find a way around this, um, whether it's by working with an elite uh, group or forming our own group or uh, getting the neighbors involved to press Nigeria um, because um, there is urgency. These are human rights suffering here in northern Nigeria of epic proportions. 10,000 killed last year, million or more in uh, IDP uh, situations. Um, and it's, um, it's going to destabilize um, the region and ultimately be a national security issue. It's not going to burn out. Um, we've, we've seen this scenario before in Syria and uh, Libya and now um, Nigeria. So we have to find a solution for this. Many of these governments in, um, that are dealing with this problem have human rights problems. We're going to have to somehow uh, come up with a solution for that. Before we close, we're out of time. I'd like to invite our honored guests, um, the school girls from Chibok, to stand up as silent witnesses um, to the, the missing um, students from their classes. Over the, um, 
last couple of years, Emmanuel has brought three um, survivors of Boko Haram to the Hudson Institute, and we've been very privileged to host them. And this is um, the most survivors we've had um, all together and, and um, at any one time. So thank you, Emmanuel, and thank you, girls. These girls are extremely courageous after what they've been through to um, come forward. And Buki, thank you so much for your articulate and passionate explanation of what is happening. Yes, if I may say uh, something, uh, historically it turns out that the Chibok girls are now the second longest held hostages of a mass adoption by a terrorist group. Um, the longest abductions lasted for 373 days. And the Chibok girls are now how many days? 343. 343. And so they're the second longest held hostages of a mass abduction by a terrorist group um, in, in contemporary world history. So it's important that we put up the pressure for the release uh, and return, safe return of these girls. Uh, the final thing I wanted to just mention is uh, Nigeria is holding elections on Saturday, and the last time there were elections, over 700 churches were destroyed um, in 48 hours. And so I would urge that we hold Nigeria in prayer, but that um, we observe and monitor that situation very closely because it's a very sensitive time. There's a real fear that there will be an alliance of Boko Haram with the street protesters uh, next week when the elections hold. And that's something that should be... Yeah, we'll observed. be monitoring that. We'll have you back to yeah. comment. Thank you very much again. Thank you, Thank you girls. Thank you.